0: The Grower, Canada's go-to horticulture news source for the latest industry information from policy to weather, innovation and pests. We're picking up the phone and calling farmers to discuss it all. My name is Amanda Broadhagen, Digital Marketing Manager for The Grower, and I'm your host. Today, I'm calling up Kevin Howe of Howe Family Farm Market located in Elmer, Ontario. There, they grow large acreage of strawberries, cantaloupe, watermelons, squash, pumpkins, and beans. Given that Halloween is just around the corner, we'll be chatting with Kevin about growing pumpkins. We will learn about his no-till approach to planting pumpkins, as well as the many different varieties that his family grows. From there, we will talk about the importance of water conservation and drip irrigation. As a leader in the industry, we will talk about the exciting changes with the Ontario Berry Growers Association. We will end our chat by discussing the very serious topic of the changes to Ontario's minimum wage laws. Kevin will offer his perspective and talk about the importance of speaking up for your farm.
1: Kevin.
0: Hey there, Kevin. Amanda here from The Grower Calling. Thank you for agreeing to join us for our fourth podcast segment.
1: Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having me on.
0: Awesome. So for our listeners tuning in, Kevin is part of a multi-generational farming family. In fact, he and his brothers represent the fifth generation. His family business is called Howe Family Farm Market, located in Elmer, Ontario. There, they grow large acreages of strawberries, cantaloupe, watermelons, squash, pumpkins, and beans. The majority of what they produce or produce is sold to large grocery store chains. Um, given that falls here, I thought we could start our conversation by talking about pumpkins. Um, Kevin, it's my understanding that your family has tried a no-till approach to growing pumpkins. Maybe you could uh, share a little bit about that uh, aspect of your business.
1: Yeah, so we grow we grow all our pumpkins on a no-till rye. Um, and so I guess I, I'll try to describe kind of why we, we switched to that or I guess I'll, I'll describe the process and then I'll describe kind of why why we chose to change our growing system to growing on rye. Uh, so we right, right now, this time of the year, we are out broadcasting uh, rye seed over any field that it, the, the crop is finished on. So uh, our, our 2017 strawberries that we worked under, that's all getting seeded to rye. Um, same with our watermelon crop that's finished now, it's getting seeded to rye. Any of our rye crop is getting reseeded to rye. And then we grow that rye, well, number one for erosion control. We're right here in uh, Elmer, Ontario, which is part of the tobacco belt. So we're we're growing on basically beach sand. So there's a lot of wind erosion. Um, So we put a cover crop down on on every acre before going into winter, just to control erosion. So uh, we in the springtime we we feed our rye crop. Um, just like you would a typical typical rye field um, and then uh, when it's about head height just before it starts to uh, pollen, blow pollen uh, we'll go out there and we'll kill the rye crop with with roundup and as and we'll plant right into that so we have a roller crimper on the front so a big lawn roller on the front and uh and planter followed behind the tractor um, it's all on one one tractor. So it's two implements on one tractor uh, the, the Crimper parts the rye and then the planter plants in into that parted line behind it um, and as a result that pumpkin grows uh, Right in between a thick bed of straw so we originally switched to that just because we we were finding we were spending so much time pulling out weeds during our only off season or, or I guess downtime between strawberry harvest and watermelon harvest. So there's about two weeks there in uh sec, the, the third and fourth week of July, usually where we're not too busy. And basically all of the, all of that time was getting spent pulling weeds all day, every day. And so we wanted to come up with something that made it a little bit, uh, uh made it so that our downtime was downtime and, not uh not a a make work project there's nothing worse than having to pull weeds so um we thought we'd give it a try with this no-till system we've seen a couple other growers that have have done this down in the states and uh since starting it um maybe six seven years i i can't even remember when we started it now it's been so long but uh um we've noticed we, we get our weed control um that pumpkin itself it ends up never touching the soil most of the time, um, with the exception of that that planter line that was, um, there's a little bit of soil expose, exposed right where you put that seed. So if a pumpkin lands there, it might be exposed to a little bit of soil. But uh, for the most part, the pumpkins never touch soil, which makes it, them quite a bit cleaner. Um, and there's also some disease pressure reduction. Um, I guess there's a little bit of... Uh, little bit less water stress to the crop um years like this which i'm sure is probably tough to believe for any growers listening that were that that farm north of the 401 uh, it was an unbelievably dry summer for us this year so no matter how um how good of water retention you have through um any practice like no till or not it was dry we we got maybe an inch and a half since july 1st Uh, and so uh um, basically, yeah, we're growing on a thick bed of straw that keeps the disease pressure low um, and the uh, the weed pressure a little bit lower. Um, this year was a little bit of a, a, a challenge for us. It was kind of a cool, wet spring, and uh, it's kind of a double... A double-edged sword growing the no-till approach where some years like this you're you end up having a, a later harvest that soil just doesn't warm up quick enough in order to um, get a mature crop uh, as early as you'd like to see it or as early as the market would like to see it so this year was a little bit more of a challenge than most but uh, for the most part it's worked well and it's it's fit our system so um, yeah that's I, I guess all I can tell you about the, the no-till approach do you have any more questions about
0: that? Yeah, I mean, it sounds really interesting. It's neat that you saw its innovation happening um, elsewhere and was, you know, able to apply it to your farm. Just talked a little bit about some of the pros and cons uh, to no-till approach. And in fact, you guys won a premier's award uh, for this um, growing technique. Now, is your input cost higher by doing this?
1: no the only real um change is that we uh we grow out the rye crop if we weren't putting a cover crop down in the fall like we were already doing and then yeah you'd have the extra expense of an extra pass over the field to plant it and the the um seed cost but we were already doing that so it really fit our system well um aside from that uh there's there's we, we've seen a little bit less um a little bit less labor in terms of harvest just because in the past we've had to it, it if you get into wet fall days which we haven't got into yet um we really need a rain again still but uh um it it's tough to it's tough to pick a clean pumpkin when you get into some wet fall weather and uh we what we had to do was we had basically a giant tub on our harvest wagon and every pumpkin you had to pick up put into the tub the next person would scrub it then they'd put it in a bin and put a label on it and so as it gets colder that's the last thing that any of any of us want to do is um be cold and wet and so it's Uh, We find we don't have to wash any of our pumpkins now. Um, The odd time, we still will just to make sure that we have a good quality product going out, but uh, um, it it has made it a little bit easier um, for harvest. But there's no real, I guess, growing cost that's been added since doing that.
0: Okay, so talked about how you grow pumpkins. Maybe tell us a little bit about the varieties of pumpkins that you grow. And tell us which one is your favorite um, pumpkin to grow and why.
1: So we grow a whole handful of different varieties, I guess, on a large scale. Each year we, we put in a, um, well, a, a Seedway actually comes out and puts in a pretty big um, seed trial just to see how each variety performs on this no-till growing method. Um, so this year I think we have about 50-some varieties that, we're getting to take a look at most of them are are your halloween type but uh we grow 100 acres of a typical jack-o'-lantern style pumpkin um and then i think this year we're growing about 50 acres of what we call an ornamental pumpkin so that's anything from a warded goblin that that's um to describe what it looks like it's an orange pumpkin with green um warts that extrude from the the skin of it and uh looks pretty really cool actually really cool in a, a funky pumpkin but we also grow um it's called one too many so it's kind of an oblong shaped pumpkin it's a white base with some uh streaking red uh lines it kind of looks like a creamsicle color pumpkin i guess um we grow pink pumpkin blue pumpkin um, uh, pumpkin that we call tiger stripe. It's a Syrian pumpkin that has edible seeds. Um, what else do we grow? fairy tale, which is a green pumpkin that t- kind of turns, uh, like a buckskin brown towards the end of, uh, fall within the next couple weeks, it'll really start to turn color. Um, and then a Cinderella pumpkin. That's kind of a darker orange, but a flat, flat pumpkin. Like I guess the Cinderella um, Cinderella pumpkin from the, uh, kids, kids movie. Um, my favorite pumpkin, I guess if you're asking for growing, definitely the Halloween type pumpkins. I, uh, I do a lot of the, I guess, forecasting for, for the chain stores, kind of what, what, what sizes we're going to have available, um, as well as the, um, quantity that we're going to have available and when. So I spend a lot of time walking through the fields, getting like spot counting, areas to try to come up with a a predicted yield and our halloween type pumpkins they're what's called a bush type so they don't really send a long line they stay very compact into where that seed emerged from the ground and it makes it very easy to to count pumpkins per plant and it makes it a lot easier to i guess come up with pumpkins per acre or yield per acre and bins per acre and uh a lot of the ornamental varieties they're what's called vine type so their vines will stretch out five ten feet easily and so you don't know it's takes up too much time to count is it one pumpkin on this plant and three on the next or is it a pumpkin and a half per plant it just makes it so difficult to try to gauge what yield you have so as a grower i like growing the, the halloween type pumpkins but uh um or if I was going to put one on my porch, probably either the warty Goblin or the uh, One Too Many. That's a really nice looking pumpkin.
0: Nice. They well, just
1: don't don't yield too well.
0: <laughs> that's a that's a tricky thing. And I actually like um, before talking to you, I had no idea that, that you know there were so many options of varieties to grow. And uh, I know on my front porch, I have a white pumpkin that I think is from your family farm as well, which uh, looks really really nice. So enough about pumpkins. Um, kind of want to talk a little bit more about innovation. Um, you guys have won an innovation award for uh, Premier's Award of Excellence for your no-till approach to growing pumpkins. Um, but there's so many other aspects that of innovation that happen on the farm, as you know, Kevin. Uh, it's my understanding that your family was one of the first in the area where you farm in. Elgin County to use underground drip irrigation to utilize water efficiency. And, you know, maybe just share with us, um, kind of the importance of water conservation. And, and I know that you have kind of an interesting, um, historical uh, perspective of how things have evolved, um, like on your family's farm throughout the generations. Yeah. So, uh, I
1: mean, my, my, grandparents and then my great-grandparents, they grew all the same crops that we grow right currently. Um, Back in the 60s, my grandpa, I I think he was the first in the area, at least the first that I've heard of, um, to implement uh, any type of sprinkler system. So he was using, it was a stationary irrigation gun. I think it was like Rainbow Rainbow Irrigation Company or something like that back way back then there was a new new technology at the time and uh, it was quickly realized that uh, um, the tough years when most growers can't get a crop off if you have the irrigation you have more consistency and more control over your crops so um, we quickly realized the importance of water to growing a good quality crop Um, and then back sometime in the 90s we switched to using drip irrigation so that was kind of changing the entire system of how we grew our watermelon crops. So um, historically, like the way that my grandpa used to do it, they would seed a watermelon plant, and it was always a a diploid variety or a seeded seeded variety of watermelon that uh, um, they'd plant out right into into bare soil around the end of May or or middle of May. And uh, that watermelon would be ready to harvest typically – Sometime after Labor Day, I know my my grandpa used to always get pissed off at uh, around uh, Oktoberfest because everybody would stop eating watermelons and go uh, go drink beer instead. So um, (laughs) Since we started using drip irrigation It was kind of a whole system switch where we we put the drip irrigation in and then uh, you cap a bed with a black plastic mulch and so that kind of reduces your your weed pressure and it conserves your water a lot more, um, so by doing that, a black plastic mulch, you get a lot more heat, and the water you have, I believe that it has like an, the the emitters that we're using, it's basically over the course of a, a one hour watering, you're putting 500 milliliters of water out at each emitter, so you're, you're spoon feeding the crop with as little amount of water as the crop needs, and, uh, it's super efficient. Um, by switching to this method, we we uh, well, we well started to grow uh, our own transplants in the greenhouse. And that was done prior, um, planted in, into bare ground as well. But uh, by growing in the greenhouse, you get an extra month early uh, expected harvest. And then transplanting that into plastic, it also gave us an extra couple weeks of, of harvest. So that season extension really changed the entire watermelon industry and that was right around the time when people first started growing your seedless watermelon or your triploid watermelon um and it's a much more expensive seed so you had to invest extra money into the growing system in order to make sure that that crop is sellable at the um time when you want it and so now the market for watermelons here in Ontario it's basically uh we're this year I think we started to pick July 18th which was pretty pretty early um and, uh, we just f- picked our last bin a-, a couple days ago and basically the markets for watermelon is dead as soon as kids go back to school. So it's completely shift from never picking watermelon before Labor Day to ne- not being able to sell watermelon after Labor Day, it seems, or it's a lot more difficult anyways. So it's, it's really, uh, changed the entire, uh, industry of wa- of how we grow watermelon. But, um, yeah, a, a- a big i guess uh, environmental benefit is that we're using a lot less water And a year like this where i mean we only had that inch and a half of water since july 1st um it, it really came in handy to having that that drip irrigation
0: so kevin is it just you guys grow a lot of different things on your family's farm is it just the watermelon crop that you use drip irrigation for
1: we uh we also use it on on strawberries um both day neutral or, or your ever bearing strawberry that, that will fruit right up until fall, um, as well as our, our June crop. And, uh, we, we haven't always used drip on, on our June strawberry crop, um, which is just planted into, into the soil. And, um, there's no plastic mulch used on that, but, uh, it, it keeps by, by putting the water right to the roots, you keep the water off the crop. So you reduce a lot of the disease pressure, um, and uh, yeah, reduce the disease pressure to the crop, and you uh, um, reduce the water—that's the amount of water that's being used. And the other thing that we found, like I guess one of the um, one of the decisions that kind of made switching to drip irrigation a no brainer was uh, uh, we have had a lot of our aluminum solid set um, sprinklers spread out around the field, and every time that we wanted to cultivate, you had to. Pay somebody to go move the pipe two rows over, cultivate it, move it two rows back, and if you do that three or four times within the season, it adds up. And so um, I think that drip irrigation is costing us somewhere around like 185 dollars an acre. It's um, so what I think that it works out for a, a one row, one line of drip. It, that quickly pays itself off, not having to pay the labor to just shift the irrigation pipe over. So, um, we'll, we'll, yeah. It, we, we, we don't use it on our pumpkin crop. It's not really as high of a value of a crop to really justify drip, but uh, it may be something to consider in the future.
0: Of course. So just switching topics here a little bit, um, Kevin, you're obviously a really busy guy. Um, in addition to helping run your family's farm, you're also involved with the Ontario Berry Growers Association, um, tell us a little bit about your role um, with that commodity organization.
1: So I'm currently the president of the of Berry Growers right now, and we're we're going through a pretty uh, exciting time. Um, we, we've just recently got the approval to transition into um, a marketing board. So prior, we've always been in a, in a voluntary association that – um, did our best to represent all of strawberry, raspberry, and blueberry growers within within the province. Um, going forward, we're a marketing board where we we now fully represent every grower. Um, and uh, so we're we're in the process of going through this this shift. So um, it should help help us to better um, provide better funding for research. To uh, we'll have a much more stable cash flow so that we can provide. Um, dollars towards research into new varieties, or growing techniques, or uh, just growing practices, um, as well as marketing and promotion of all berry crops. So, um, I- I'm sure you've probably read a few of the the grower articles on the emerging greenhouse uh, strawberry industry that's taking place around Leamington. And um, as a gr- as a field grower, I'm equally as excited about about this this opportunity as as uh, anybody else would be because uh, the way I see it, uh, day neutrals are a fairly new within the last 20 to, 20 to 30 years, a fairly new uh, crop of strawberries that we, we've started growing. And it's very difficult for consumers to understand, I guess, the process in which like, why is this strawberry fruiting all summer long? Whereas the strawberry that I'm used to only fruits over June and it, it, for those that aren't too familiar with strawberries, all of their fruit gets set with the short day lengths taking place right now in the fall. So next year's crop is getting established right now, whereas the day neutral or the everbearing, it sets its fruit independently of day lengths. So that's why it's able to fruit all all season long. Um, and it's a lot easier to explain to a customer or a consumer um, that this strawberry produces at this time of the year because it was grown in a greenhouse. They just—it's—it's it's so much easier for them to to wrap their head around it rather than than the physiological um, aspect of, of the plant itself. So I I know I'm looking at it as if the the growing greenhouse industry is going to be um, mutually beneficial to all growers because it keeps people looking at Ontario berries as well as uh local produce year round and i think that that's so important going forward because there's there's so much uh berries being imported in from from the state so any way any way that we can capitalize on some of that uh that market the better
0: absolutely and i am a big fan of strawberries so i am also excited about um about the direction that uh the berry growers is taking and and also um like you said sort of the um, the investment in greenhouse uh, greenhouse uh, grown strawberries, in especially in the Leamington area. So, uh, Kevin, you've you've been uh, you know outspoken advocate for your family's farm and for Ontario growers, especially with your role as president uh, currently as president uh, with the Ontario Berry Growers Association kind of switching gears into more of a really serious topic that's, uh, you know, on the minds of a lot of growers today is kind of the impacts that the proposed minimum uh, changes to minimum wage that could have on the horticulture industry. Maybe share with us your perspective on this issue and um, what have you specifically done to encourage farmers to speak up about it?
1: Yeah, so I don't remember the exact day that I guess the news broke about the minimum wage changing to fourteen fourteen dollars an hour, but uh, we were just at the start of our strawberry harvest, and there was a lot on there was a lot on our on my mind. I mean, for strawberry harvest, we rely on a lot of uh, both your your uh, um, temporary foreign workers as well as uh, a lot of locals come out. So on a, this year, I think our busiest day of harvest, we had over two hundred and twenty people. Out picking strawberries in the field and there was just so much um on my business side that i had to wrap my head around just the day-to-day and then how having to worry about what we're going to be doing in the future and how we can how we can absorb this cost or keep keep farming profitably and um basically i i tuned into several phone calls with uh the fruit and veg growers association as well as some um there were several uh, email threads between a bunch of the the berry growers um, members, and uh, started to crunch the numbers of what this is going to mean to our farm. And I, I mean, next next year um, on our farm specifically, we're looking at two hundred five thousand dollars of extra uh, money going towards labor that we wouldn't have had this this growing season. And so um, that's a, a, an enormous hit like i I don't know how we're gonna be able to operate at our current capacity and so basically I was kind of at a loss like just getting into the harvest season and you're wondering how you're gonna be able to farm next year let alone this year and get this year's crop off so it was just it was so so very um everything just seems so doom and gloom at at the time and i mean it, it still doesn't seem um, peachy right now, I wouldn't say. Um, it's it's gonna hurt a lot of hurt a lot of growers, and it's definitely gonna gonna hurt hurt us. Um, all of the crops that we grow are so very labor intensive. Um, mo- most of the crops that we grow, strawberries, watermelon, pumpkin, rain. The cost of production um, for labor ranges between fifty to sixty percent. So they're all affected so much and we really have no way of passing these costs on to to our buyers I know historically um, we've been able to see very modest price increases of what we've got from the various chain stores that's typically fallen along the lines of that three percent or so per year which is kind of in line with inflation right and uh, we've never really we've never seen anything over and above that rise um and the years when we do have say a, a larger percentage increase over the previous year uh, to me it's always came at times when the canadian dollar is is very low in respect to the uh, american dollar so um it just makes it that much more it makes us that much more competitive against imports um so looking at the future who knows what the dollar is going to be doing and who knows uh um, how competitive we're going to be, because um, we have to be able to sell our product in a way that makes the chain stores justify paying that price difference for us, as opposed to to strawberries out of California or Florida, or watermelons out of Rhode Island or Maine, or uh, pumpkins out of Michigan or, or Ohio. Um, it, we've got we've got to be competitive, and right now there's really no protection for your domestic fruit and veg producers. And so I don't know. I, I hummed and hawed about what to be doing about this and over the years, like the back at the last wage increase when it went from ten twenty five to uh eleven forty, um it was supposed to be tied to inflation after after that wage increase, which at least lets us as business owners make decisions so that we can invest wisely in um, machinery and equipment that will provide it with cost savings down the road and it keeps us in business and it keeps us competitive and then a year and a half two years later we're, we're hit with a much much rise in 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 wages just out of the blue it's the taxing government and uh um the previous time around when the cost of or the, the labor, labor um, minimum wage was, was going up. Um, I know that I spent a lot of time emailing all the, the all of our, our MPs um, to let them know how this impacts us and it, it seemed like we were just preaching to the choir at the time like uh, if you're in a, a rural community chances are you have a conservative um, MP and uh, they're already saying what you're telling them for the most part and uh so you're not really reaching the audience that you need to and so i started thinking that why not like there, there's systems in place that other lobby groups or other um industries are doing that has to be working like and, as we get closer to elections i can guarantee that you're going to start to hear um the teachers union on radios or um several commercials for, for nursing or tra- various trade organizations that are, are lobbying to the consumer. And to me, that's where the change needs needs to be taking place, or at least the awareness needs to be um, getting created. We need to be reaching the, the consumer and a bigger audience and have them have our backs. Um, because I think that as growers, we're doing a lot of really cool, really innovative very beneficial things to all of society they don't often get showcased in um in the spotlight so some i know on our firm we do a lot of um environmental sustainability initiatives and things that give back to the community um and so sharing what those things that we do um and how we're not going to be able to continue doing that um by not being able to potentially farm or by downsizing or by uh, um, switching to a crop that is automated or mechanized, um, it, it at least creates the awareness to the consumer that it it might make them say, hey, this is important to support local. This is why. I'm going to pay that extra dollar or $2 for that unit of strawberries or watermelon or tomatoes, whatever the crop may be, just looking for local. And uh, so I, I did a, a, a Facebook post, which who knows how how, um, how big of an audience going to be reaching there. But at the very least, it's going to be people that you're friends with that might not know um, the reasoning um or might see this rate rise in minimum wage a different way because I, th- I think everybody wants to help out people that are at need or that are in need of um having a good living and uh they just might not be aware of how unique the horticulture industry and a lot of other um industries within A are to uh to this rise in um Minimum wage um, in horticulture—it's—it's it's most growers' largest cost of production, and we compete at the grocery stores against imports. So we're—we're—we're we're, we're kind of in probably the most sensitive area um, in terms of who's going to be getting affected the most by this ri- rise in minimum wage. Um, so I, I did this post, and I, I mean, it had a lot more feedback than than what I had ever expected. Um, It was shared over 400 times. I think close to 500 times and the comments were just it was exhausting just keeping up with uh, both positive and negative uh, comments and so um, after going through that entire process of uh, I was up till at least midnight every night during strawberry harvest when I should be focusing on the crop just answering the critics and and answering the people that supported me and and trying to come up with understanding between both sides because um in agriculture i I know with uh, the advanced egg leadership program uh, that i was in uh, uh, the other year jeff leal has made the comment that um, 1.4 percent of the population farms and so it's not difficult to imagine that people don't see our side of of the story. They're they're very separated from the issues that are affecting us. Um, And, uh, I I mean, I think that I did a a decent job of handling some of the criticism, but I I found that there was a lot of similarities between the the critics. And so I came up with a little summary of um, what to expect if you're going to be putting yourself out there and um, trying to – create awareness of how we're going to be impacted by these decisions um, to raise minimum wage and, uh, uh, um, I guess, things to avoid and things to include. And I, I know that I sent that to you, and I think it got it got circulated in an e- newsletter a, a month or so ago.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We uh, blasted that out, and it actually, I remember looking at the analytics and, and sharing with you afterwards, and, like, that got a lot of hits, so definitely uh, on the minds of a lot of growers and I think um, your example that you illustrated of you know putting it out there on your personal uh, social media feed and you had you know an excellent uh, response um, in terms of volume of responses from people and you know obviously taking the time to respond but then also you know realizing that uh, you know coming up with a really efficient way to address some of the critics, like you say, and be able to provide, um, share, you know, your experience and share those tools with other growers that so they they're able to, uh, speak up and share their story as well.
1: Yeah, it was, it was extremely frustrating trying to be, um, I guess, <laughs> trying not to explode on certain certain people for having certain viewpoints and just, just really thinking slowly and saying, okay, they think differently than I do. And I'm sure there's a reason for that. I'm at least going to explain why I think the way that I do and hope that it, uh, um, it reaches them or possibly changes their mind. And at the very least, maybe that they will look for that Foodland Ontario logo at the grocery store the next time that they're they're buying a, uh, an apple. If they're looking for an apple, hopefully they buy product of Ontario as opposed to product of Washington. Um, but uh, it, it, it's tough, and I, I mean, it's such a delicate issue that if you don't uh, approach it the right way, um, it's very quick. You can very quickly um, get <laughs> draw draw worse attention, um, and I guess worse. It's, it's very easy to send the wrong message that you don't want to be getting out because, um, I don't know, these decisions aren't getting made to screw over the farmers, even though it just seems like we're constantly getting thrown, thrown uh, aside. Um, and uh, I don't know, handling it wrong can really hurt farmer's image in the consumer's mind so i really wanted to try to tackle this topic uh strategically and um i think i think that i did and uh, i i know that uh, there were a lot of other really good posts as well um one that really stood out f- um for me was uh, jackie frazier from uh, she has Frazier's farm farm market um in fergus and she she's done an amazing job of of articulating how these issues affect us um, as users, and uh, really reached a really wide audience. And, and uh, I mean, if had I had saw her post before I wrote mine, I definitely would have changed a lot. <laughs> um, but uh, it, I think it, for other growers, I think that it's very important to um, I guess have that, that, viewpoint that uh um we can't rely on just our our, our associations or our uh, our commodity groups to lobby on our behalf where there's far too few of us and there just isn't the resources available to uh to have any significance um dealing with with the, the politics right now and we, re, we really need to be reaching everybody and we need to have everybody speaking up on behalf of themselves and on behalf of all of the growers and so I, I really want to encourage as many people as possible to share their story how it affects them and to do it in a in in a very uh, strategic way I, I, I mean I, I don't know if you're able to to share uh the link to that uh, um article earlier and maybe in the footnotes of this podcast is that possible to do
0: yeah it absolutely is we will definitely link that in so that people can get a chance to uh you know you talk about being strategic and sort of your messaging but I mean I I would go as far as to say the thoughtfulness that you put in to your post and also uh what uh what Jackie also wrote and you know several other growers in terms of uh, sharing the, uh, you know, obviously the numbers, but also kind of the emotional and personal side of how it's going to impact your family farm. I think that certainly resonates with a lot more people. And I think, you know, speaks to the power of being able to, um, you know, of course we have our farm lobby organizations like the interior fruit and vegetable growers association fighting really hard, on behalf of growers but it's also just as important for individual growers ladies and gentlemen that concludes the end end of of our fourth podcast segment we thank kevin Howe for joining us you can follow him on twitter at how family farm market on facebook twitter and instagram